Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Mark Crispin Miller, a professor of media, culture, and communication at New York University. He's the author of several books, including Boxed In, The Culture of TV, The Bush Dyslexicon, Observations on a National Disorder, and Fooled Again, The Real Case for Electoral Reform. He is also founder of News from Underground. I welcome Mark Crispin Miller to Savage Minds. Your case, when I read about it on social media, I believe it was first Facebook, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't surprised given with, uh, given that which Michael Rechtenwald had been dealing with, his case yeah, there, right, and right. the woke culture that has hit New York. That's, you know, we know it's hit academia, but New York was a specific hotbed of this because yeah. I was teaching at NYU in the 90s, in the early noughts, and I was a graduate student at NYU, 19 university place. So I got some of those star system academics that were brought in, if you recall, when, you know, they brought Zizek and Butler and so forth. And, you know, at the time as a graduate student, I thought, oh, this is great. But then, you know, the underbelly of a lot of what is being put into departments, new departments formed. Again, I thought, great, we need new departments. We need new axis of looking at academic studies, historically, philosophically. Little did I know then that this would become something much bigger and that would have a a force to it that resembles more McCarthyism than anything that, let's say, what these people believe themselves to be in the likeness of Martin Luther King or Mandela had aspired to. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure, sure. Well, I mean, they're not progressives at all in any, you know, uh, practical sense. Uh, um, were you in German? I was in comparative literature. Oh, so, conflict. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, and that had, you know, there were so many great things I got out of that department. Mm-hmm. And I took studies, as you know, when you're in New York, you can take studies at Columbia and at CUNY Graduate Center. And I eventually did my PhD at CUNY mm-hmm. and I taught at Gallatin. And I was brought in to teach at Gallatin. I had just come back from Morocco, I was in Austin. And they wanted me to take this course called Cultures and Conflict. And they said, this professor's had to go on leave. So I went back to New York. I taught the course, made my own syllabus of it. And the department let me know early on that the person who was about to teach this had made a syllabus they disapproved of, you know. And Mm. I thought, oh, okay, why? And they thought it was a little too conservative. Uh, This person had offered a syllabus that was balanced, I thought. But I did my own thing and they seemed happy with it. And I went on to teach there for a while. And, you know, I had a great time as, a, as an adjunct professor at NYU, let me say. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, let's talk about what happened to you. I've read through so much crazy documentation. I'm, I'm really shocked if this has to be a, a Monday night movie of the week. You know what I mean? In the old 1980s <laughs> style. And we need yeah. like Stephanie Powers in it and all those great actors from the 80s in it. Um, can you describe to our listeners what happened to you? Yeah, okay. Well, I, I appreciate your invitation. And, and um, you know, I'm glad that you uh, had a personal experience of the culture at NYU, which, which I want to stress, as you noted, is, is uh, really all pervasive now. And, and not just in higher education, 
but um, it, it's, it's bled down in, into lower education, um, high schools, certainly. At any rate, I'll tell the story because it is exemplary um, of, of a lot of very um, sinister trends in, in, uh, in the culture generally and um, academia in particular. Uh, I teach a course at NYU uh, on propaganda and have been doing so for a couple of decades, um, at least twice a year, mostly to undergraduates, sometimes to master's students. And at the beginning of every semester, I make very clear that um, I don't approach propaganda as an academic subject or as some remote historical phenomenon um, unique to totalitarian systems. Because some survey courses on propaganda place a particular stress on the Nazis on the Bolsheviks, um, oh, they'll talk about World War I, the Allied propaganda there, they might get up to the post-war Red Scare and uh, McCarthyism. But I, I think it's, it's uh, kind of meaningless to put propaganda at that kind of distance because the purpose of such a course should be not to see propaganda as something with a discrete historical tradition but as uh, an all pervasive stimulus that affects all of us in one way or another, uh, invariably without our realizing it, without, without, without our even recognizing that it is propaganda that we're taking in. So I tell the class every semester, we are going to uh, try to tackle some propaganda drives occurring in real time. Uh, or that are recent enough for you to remember them. And I want to forewarn you that this, is, this can be very difficult, uh, not just difficult um, intellectually, but uh, difficult psychologically, uh, emotionally, and, and socially. Because if you you do what you must do in order to understand propaganda, in order to perceive it and understand it, is to look at it as impartially as possible, uh, as thoroughly as possible, which is to say you, you have to look beyond it uh, as well as at it. You have to find the other side of the story, which, which can be kind of a challenge uh, because propaganda is obverse is always censorship. They go together, can't have one without the other because propaganda wants to dominate your mind, your heart and mind completely and everybody else's completely. It doesn't want an argument. It's not like rhetoric. It's not trying to persuade you. It's trying to reach you at a much deeper level. So the problem here is that everyone can, can spot the propaganda that they don't agree with. So you ask somebody on the left, what's, what's propaganda? They'll say, oh, Fox News. And you ask somebody on the right, the same question, they'll say, the New York Times, uh, MSNBC, hate that Rachel Maddow, you know? Well, uh, they're both right. I mean, both those, uh, uh, 
those outlets on either side pump out tons of propaganda. The problem is that these people can see only the propaganda they don't like. So uh, tell the class, we're gonna try to get past that. You're gonna have to try to pull back and be prepared to move out of your comfort zone and maybe reconsider some things you've taken for granted as true. And then I say a final thing, and it's something I repeat um, ad nauseum all semester, because I can't stress it strongly enough. I say, in this course, you're gonna hear me refer to evidence of um, counter narratives that may shock you. Uh, I want you to bear this in mind. Don't believe a single word I say. Don't believe anything I say because I'm not here. I'm not here as an oracle. I, I don't know everything. I'm not an authority. I've just studied some things in depth. But if you find something I've said uh, shocking or outrageous, check it out, look into it. I mean, really look into it. Uh, don't just do a Google search and see what comes up first. Uh, look into it and, and see. And if I'm right, uh, you've learned something, right? If I'm wrong, come to class and say how, and we'll talk about it. Maybe I'll change my mind. So I say all this now, the, the first week of class last fall, it, it, it was uh, odd, of course, in that we were, we were meeting via Zoom, right? Just as I'm talking to you that way now. I said, now, what's going on? You know, what's, what's in the atmosphere now? Well, look at how we're meeting. I mean, how unnatural is this? We all hate it. So why are we doing this? Well, obviously we're doing it because of the COVID crisis. And uh, the COVID crisis has been moved along by a number of very powerful propaganda themes. And I make clear, that's not to say they're necessarily false because propaganda can be true. You know, a campaign against smoking, right? Uh, campaign to raise awareness of breast cancer. I mean, those are propaganda drives and they're not nefarious or dishonest. Uh, at any rate, uh, we've certainly heard a tremendous amount of propaganda all this year. That's why we're meeting by Zoom. Uh, so we could examine an aspect of that crisis. For example, we could look at the mask mandates. I said, it may interest you to know that all the randomized controlled studies of mask wearing in hospital settings uh, over the last 15 or so years have, have found that masks are not effective at blocking the transmission of respiratory viruses. I would encourage you to read those studies. They're all in reputable journals and I'll send you the links. I also encourage you to read more recent studies finding otherwise, because a lot of those have come out over the course of the summer. Remember this is last September. Uh, I said, now you're not scientists, I'm not a scientist. So how are we to even start to assess the, soundness of those studies. I said, well, there's, a, you know, some things a layperson can do. Often when a new study comes out, you, you can find scientific reviews 
of the, of the work. Um, and you should also take note of what university a study is um, you know, conducted at, because if you do you know, two minutes of research, you can find out if that university has big uh, contracts or partnerships with big pharma or the Gates Foundation, and that kind of thing could skew the findings. There could be conflicts of interest. I, all right, that was basically in a nutshell what I said at the beginning of the course. And then the following week, uh, I think maybe even later, a student emailed me. Uh, in fact, she was a Gallatin student. She asked to join the class. And I, as I always do, I said, sure. I, you know, said I, some of my best students have been, are Gallatin students. So she came in. And the second day she was there, uh, the discussion of masks resumed because another student in the class, um, well, let me uh, give a little parenthetical background. Uh, when I was talking about the randomized controlled studies, I said there were eight. Uh, actually, there are 10, and in fact, 11, because one just came out of Denmark some months ago about whether masks block transmission of COVID-19 in particular. Anyway, at the time, I, I knew of only eight. And seven of them uh, were compiled in an article by a Canadian physicist named Denis Rancourt, who does excellent work. And I mentioned his compilation. It's a convenient way to get to those seven studies. All right, this uh, somewhat later class, another student started to attack Rancourt and his work. And I recognized the, the uh, points he was making. And I said, did you read uh, Dennis uh, Johnson's column in psychology today? And he said, yes. I said, well, then you didn't really read the studies. And I, I don't think he said anything. I said, I reckon you, you went to Google and you did a search and that came up first, right? Um, I don't know if I pointed out then, uh, but it is relevant to note that Google owns two pharmaceutical companies. So uh, you, you should never do your research on, on this subject, or really any controversial subject by, by going to Google. And that was you know, an interesting discussion, but it, it didn't so much have to do with masks per se as it did with uh, you know, propaganda <clears throat> uh, directed at someone who was criticizing or questioning the, the mask mandates, okay. This Gallatin student didn't say a word. Uh, and the next thing I knew, this was a Thursday. I think it was uh, the following Monday, I got a phone call from my department chair. And I think I have this right. Uh, the details are a little hazy, but he asked me in kind of an accusatory tone if I, if I had discouraged the students from wearing masks. And I said, no, on the contrary, I said, uh, as I should have mentioned uh, a moment ago, that in that first class, I said, I wanna be clear, I am not telling you not to wear masks. This is an intellectual exercise. Uh, there's a rule at NYU, you know, if you have to follow the rule, you follow the rule. This isn't about that. This is about the scientific justification for the rule and such rules generally. 
anyway, chair, you know, asked me this question. I said, no, I, I, I had them read these studies, et cetera. And I, I think he said to me in that, <clears throat> excuse me, in that conversation, he, he said, um, do you think you know more than the doctors at NYU? Which kind of flummoxed me. I, <laughs> I didn't know what to say. Um, I, I said, look, I, I, you know, I read the studies and, and uh, other studies and I asked the class to read those. He said, well, I have to tell the uh, COVID uh, action team, and again, I don't know what it's called, some bureaucratic thing about this. I said, okay. Um, and I think he told me that a student in the class had gone on Twitter and was complaining about, about me and it. I think he was the one who told me. I found out that day at any rate. And I went and saw that indeed the student had gone on Twitter, livid, right? And uh, un un unloosed the stream of tweets against me demanding that NYU fire me for putting students at risk. Uh, her, her, her exact words were, for an excessive amount of skepticism around healthcare professionals, by which I assume she meant Dr. Fauci, right? Uh, because, you know, the studies were all done by healthcare professionals. Uh, okay, that was pretty, what happened, this is all from her. You know, she tweeted that she, she was so incensed that she called NYU's bias hotline and got the brush off because they said, you know, this, this is not a case of bias. I mean, it, there's nothing we can do about this. That's when she went to Twitter um, and uh, attacked me that way and included a number of tweets with screenshots of my uh, website, News From Underground. It's markcrispinmiller.com. And there's a list serve. Every day I send stuff out to members of the list. Then everything ends up on the uh, website. And you can join that list by just going there and signing up. I recommend the daily digest option, unless you don't mind being bombarded with individual emails, you know, one at a time. So she, she, she you know, tore through uh, some uh, prior posts and took screenshots of them and flung them up uh, in her tweets. And it basically, uh, you know, as far as she was concerned, everything I had uh, highlighted on, on my website was just false, self-evidently false. And she said, uh, all this material comes from far right and conspiracy websites, far right websites like Global Research, Technocracy, Dell Big Trees, Highwire, Zero Hedge, you know, they're all Nazi sites. Uh, you know, everything she showed was, was actually completely sound, but in her universe, it was just crazy and dangerous. All right. Now, I have often had students argue with me. I welcome that, I relish it. Uh, and I only wish that she had you know, chosen to bring her anger to class and speak you know, there. She just went public and demanded my ouster. Now, I, I, you know, students have been unhappy with me before, but nothing like that has ever happened. So I was taken aback by it to say the least. But what was really troubling was that my department chair 
uh, I guess had instantly or quickly tweeted his thanks to her and said, this is a quote, we as a department have made this a priority and are discussing next steps. Okay, now I, that floored me. I, I, I am a member of that department. I've been a member of that department for going on 24 years. So I don't understand how they as a department could have taken this decision without even talking to me. I guess my chair thought our brief conversation was sufficient. So I called him and I said, you know, why, why did you tell her you're gonna make my firing a priority? And he, uh, he said, oh no, uh, I didn't mean that. I just wanted her to know she'd been heard. I said, well, why didn't you just tweet, well, thank you for your opinion. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, get, we'll be in touch. <laughs> I mean, I, he was, um, I, you know, I realized in retrospect, he was acting under pressure from um, certain other members of the faculty, but we get to this because the story gets much better. I asked him to take the tweet down. He huffed and puffed and act, acted as if this was an unreasonable you know, infringement of his, you know, First Amendment rights. So it's still up. People can still find it. And that was only the beginning, Julian. Um, the next day, uh, the other students in my class all got an email from the doctor who dictates COVID policy at NYU. And it was co-signed by the dean of the Steinhardt School in which I teach. And they did not put me on copy. The email intimated that I had given them dangerous misinformation and um, provided a list of links to what they called an authoritative source of public health guidance, which is the CDC. So this email essentially told them what to think because I too had told the students to read those studies, uh, but I told them to make up their own minds but these two bureaucrats uh, jumped into my class, you know, seized my podium as it were, uh, without consulting me first. This was Jack Naughton, Carlo Cittoli. Yeah, uh, Jack Naughton, Carlo Cittoli. And, and you know, Carlo Cittoli is obviously the driving force, uh, I think, I mean, there's probably a driving force behind Carlo Cittoli, but he is the one who lays down the rules of NYU, which are, notoriously uh, draconian and, and have led to several lawsuits. I mean, they're suspending students for having been at parties unmasked over the summer. You know, it's, it's, it's really insane biofascism, but, but I'm, I'm getting ahead of the story here. These two guys saw fit to send an email to my students telling them what to think and reminding them that there's a rule to wear masks as if I had told the students to ignore the rule. This was to say the least presumptuous. And In I wouldn't- class where you're discussing propaganda, yeah. ironically. <laughs> I know, the irony is sort of uh, staggering, right, okay. So uh, I wouldn't have known about this if some students hadn't told me and one sent me the email, which I have. And then the next day, oh, oh meanwhile, I was being attacked in the media uh, because this uh, young woman's tweet mysteriously had a lot of traction for somebody with only 79 followers because all kinds of people saw it and the media picked it up. You know, I was attacked on uh, 
you know, NBC News, the local, you know, station. I was attacked by Gothamist, the New York City uh, website. I was attacked on City and State, which is also a New York State-based uh, website, which listed me among the losers of the week. And not, none of these reporters talked to me. You know, they just read this tweet and went ape. Uh, the New York Post did a story that at, le at least uh, quoted me. You know, I mean, it was balanced, as did NBC National News. But the point is, this obscure tweet by an, you know an undergraduate with very with a very small Twitter following was, was all over the place. So that was notable. So I'm being buffeted by all this. And then the following day, I think this all happened over three days, my department chair said, uh, it would be good for the department if you were to cancel the propaganda course for next semester, which is this semester. I said, why? He said, well, you know, your film course is very popular. So if you were to teach two sections of that, instead of one and the propaganda course, it'll be good for our numbers. I said, yeah, well, uh, both, both classes are limited to 24 students and they're always full. I let a few extra into both, so I don't really see the difference. And I, that just went right you know, past him. He, did not want to hear that. He just wanted me not to teach the propaganda. That was obviously his mission. And strictly speaking, that's his call. So I said, all right, I have no choice. I'll cancel it, but um, I'm doing it under protest. Okay, so that would have been this semester, uh, but I'm on medical leave now um, with, with indeed Lyme disease and um, uh, the stress of that whole ordeal uh, really did me uh, physical harm, um, and that's relevant as well to the rest of this narrative. So here it is, uh, you know, late September, and um, I, this was unacceptable to me. I, I could not just take this. It was outrageous. Um, I take great pride in my teaching, always have, and, and have... Um, a bulging sheaf of uh, you know grateful emails and letters uh, from students who found that course in particular to be life changing, and I think it does what higher education is supposed to do, which is to teach independent thinking. So, I was discussing this with some friends, including Nikki Huff, who runs Project Censored, and we agreed that I should I should draft a petition, and he helped me with it. And uh, it's up on uh, change.org. And all it, all it asks is that NYU respect my academic freedom. I mean, it tells the whole backstory. But I did so, and this is why this is an important story because it isn't just about me. I drafted this petition in the name of all professors, journalists, scientists, doctors, whistleblowers, and activists who've been gagged or persecuted for their dissenting views, uh, not, not just over the course of last year, but I mean, it, it, it hit the crisis point last year and it's even more frightening at the moment, but this stuff's been going on for decades. And um, it was in, in their name and for their sake and 
for everybody's sake, that I drafted this petition calling my fight at NYU a flashpoint in the larger struggle for free speech and academic freedom. And that, you know, without that freedom, uh, higher education merely becomes training for compliance, which I believed then and believe even more strongly now. All right, that went up and, you know, to my uh, delight, it started to draw many, many signatures, thousands and thousands of signatures, including Seymour Hirsch and James Galbraith and uh, you know, Bobby Kennedy Jr., Oliver Stone, Cynthia McKinney, uh, Governor Don Siegelman of Alabama, the Chinese dissident Chen Guangcheng. And you know, it was really a lot of, a lot, a lot of very uh, eminent academics. Yeah, Ralph Nader. Uh, well, Ralph didn't sign it, interestingly. He, oh, he had a statement of support, that's right. Yeah, he sent me a statement of support. He said that I could use. He has a very strict policy on actually signing petitions. And he, he was all wrapped up in his Boeing struggle. You know, he's been focused on trying to uh, bring uh, Boeing to justice for flying those um, fatally flawed airliners. So he just, he knows me and he just wrote me this statement that I sent to the president of the university, but this was yet to come. Anyway, uh, you know, signatures are pouring in and uh, the, my class proceeds and there's some excellent students in there whose work I ended up sending out to my listserv at the end of the semester. And then uh, almost exactly to the day, a month after the students attack on me, I get an email from my dean informing me, and he had never talked to me, that he had ordered a review of my conduct uh, as demanded by my department colleagues in the attached letter, okay? So having at first taken the decision to make my firing a priority without talking to me, now they had drafted a letter formally Re requesting that the dean uh, arrange what they called an expedited review of my conduct on the grounds that while they believe in academic freedom, and you know, that's something that, that the dean and the doctor also said in their email to my class, you know, we, we believe strongly in academic freedom. You know, when you hear that, you got to brace yourself for the but, right? But. So my colleague said, you know, we are all, uh, you know, committed to academic freedom, but as, as noted in the faculty handbook, uh, academic freedom uh, can uh, be nullified if a professor's conduct is so heinous that, uh, you know, something must be done. And indeed they said, mine was that heinous. Now, first they said, I had discouraged my students from wearing masks and intimidated students who were wearing masks, okay? Both of those claims are, are, are insane. You know, they bear no relation to reality. And the second one, especially so, because I, you know, I was teaching this class on Zoom and I've never seen a student wear a mask on Zoom, you know? Um, there probably are some, because some people are extremely nervous, but it wasn't, you know, it was fantasy. But that was only the taking off point because from there, they went on to claim that I had uh, assailed my students with non-evidence-based arguments, 
that I had engaged in explicit hate speech, that I had mounted attacks on students and others in our community, that I had advocated for an unsafe learning environment and had committed microaggressions and aggressions, okay? So not only was I a public health menace, but I was some kind of, um, you know, Klansman uh, in disguise. Uh, you know, I was an alt-right bully who, they claimed I, I wouldn't uh, tolerate disagreement. I mean, this was so completely antithetical to my teaching style as, as, as to seem downright psychotic. I mean, I couldn't believe my eyes, nor could I believe the fact that the Dean had just gone ahead and ordered this review. So I was, um, I didn't know what to do. I, I emailed the provost who, who I, is a very reasonable person. And I said, what, what do I do about this? And she said, uh, meet with the Dean. So I requested a meeting with him and I got my meeting, uh, you know, via Zoom. And he was extremely vague about the whole thing. He's new to the job and he didn't really seem to be part of it in, a, in an odd way because he was, as I say, so sort of cloudy, you know, I said, you know, what, why, are, why did you go ahead and do this? He said, well, and this is significant, the university's lawyers uh, told me and the provost that we have to do the review. And as I was later to learn that, that that's actually false. Uh, they did not have to do it. And in fact, there's no legal grounds for it, but the lawyers said to do it. I said, all right, uh, what is this review? What, what will it entail? He said, uh, well, we'll talk to people. I said, what, what people? He said, faculty and students. I said, faculty, no faculty have seen me teach. He said, all right, well, students. <laughs> you know, I, it was like trying to you know, grasp a cloud. You know, there was just, so I said, all right, well, what, what's the timeline here? He said, well, it'll, it'll uh, wrap up by the end of the semester, which would have been mid-December. All right, it's, it's mid-April now, and um, as far as I know, whatever the review is, it's still going on. I've never heard from anybody, nor has any student contacted me to say they've heard from the dean's office. Meanwhile, as I told the dean I would do, I, I asked for emails of support from current and former students and from uh, former visitors to my courses over the years. And they have well over 50 of them. And they're really, really gratifying to me because they're kind of a collective testament to, to the value of my teaching. So uh, that's the one bright spot here. But the point I'm trying to make is I don't think there's a review. I think it's something else. I think it's a pretext. Uh, anyway, as to their letter, I went over it with a fine tooth comb as they say, and I drafted a point by point rebuttal of their every claim and requested a retraction and an apology. Uh, they ignored that. I sent it again a week later and I gave them a deadline of November 20th. They ignored that. So I, I, there was absolutely no way I was gonna tolerate this and let it go uh, because, uh, and, and you know, not least because 
it's it seemed kind of evident that something was going on uh, to get rid of me. You know, I am tenured, so I decided to sue my colleagues for libel. And this was after you had written twice asking twice. them to right. retract their statement or their right. libel of you, essentially. Yes, exactly. And, uh, you know, at one point, this is interesting, I got an email from one of them and they were all on copy. And at first I thought it was an attempt to engage with my rebuttal. And it, it turned out to be more like a prosecutor's summation to the jury because it pointed out three things in my rebuttal that, that demonstrated, according to her, that I am indeed a hateful person. Uh, so it wasn't really an, a request that, you know, it wasn't an att a collegial attempt to engage me on any issues. It was just a, a kind of a lame attempt to double down on the, the initial claim that I was hateful and uh, bigoted and right wing and, and all this. So that, you know, that doesn't count as a response. It, it, it said nothing about retracting anything, it's on the contrary. So 25 of my colleagues signed the letter. I think there's about uh, maybe 33 people in the department. So eight or so did not sign it. So I decided to sue 19 of them because I'm not suing the junior faculty who signed because I, you know, they, Maybe they were eager to sign, but in any case, there was certainly pressure to do so. So I'm suing 19. All the documents in this uh, case are on my website at markcrispinmiller.com. And there is a GoFundMe page. Uh, if you just do a search on my name and GoFundMe and libel, you'll find it. I'm raising $100,000 for what I expect to be a protracted legal struggle. The money is going directly into an escrow account that my lawyer is managing, so I'm not profiting from this in any way. Uh, so we filed suit. Uh, we served as many of them as they could find with uh, you know, papers. Uh, they, I think, were taken aback. I don't think anybody expected me to do this. I don't think NYU expected me to do this because I should add that the review is apparently ongoing. You know, if for some reason they didn't put a period to it yet. And I guess this uh, step I'm taking has caused them to hang fire. At any rate, they finally got a lawyer and uh, asked for a, an extension and then filed a motion to dismiss. That's up on my website. And I, I think people should look at it if they're interested because they just double down. They say, we did not libel you because everything we said was true. And anyway, we did not make this public. You did by sending out our le a letter to the Dean. And finally, we did not intend to have you fired, okay? Working backward, that claim is obviously disingenuous because if my conduct is so heinous that my academic freedom should be suspended, I obviously should be fired. And as to the, who publicized this first, it was my department chair who tweeted his support for the student who wanted me fired. And as for their uh, evidence that I am indeed 
all the things they charged me with being, I, I do think people should look at their exhibits because most of them are their own internal email exchanges about me over the last several years. I had no idea this was going on. I thought they just weren't interested in my work, but it turns out that six or seven of them have had a real uh, ax to grind against me and have wanted very much to get rid of me. And uh, some, of, some of them are sort of self-incriminating. I, I, I don't see the, you know, what they're thinking exactly. At any rate, they filed that. We responded with a brief in my affidavit, which I also would like people to read because I think it's quite powerful. And finally, their reply. That's the process with motions to dismiss. So as we speak at this moment, uh, at any moment, the judge could rule on their motion to dismiss, either by granting it, in which case we will appeal, or by denying it, in which case we will proceed, or by asking for oral arguments from the lawyers, which I is actually my favorite. <laughs> that I would like to see those arguments in a, in a courtroom, you know, or by however they're going to do it. Uh, that's where we are, and um, I'm. This gets us into NYU, which you know all too well. I I don't think that this was an organic um, uh, process. I I I actually now realize that. There's, there's been a, a, an, a, an attempt to get rid of me going on for some time. And it's interesting to talk about it because it typifies a, a sort of an, un, an unholy alliance that we're seeing all over the place now between uh, corporate entities with ruthless neoliberal agendas and woke militants, you know, who, who consider themselves left wing, all right? Now, let's see, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to attack this in, in a way that's most interesting to, to you and, 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 and our listeners. You know, this was actually the third strike against me in 2020, okay? The first was early in the year when I got a summons to the Office of Equal Opportunity saying that my conduct had come under scrutiny. I had no idea what this could mean. I wrote back and said, what, what conduct? And, and, and all they said was um, some of your comments about gender relations or gender identity, something like that, gender something. I said, all right, I'm, I'm being summoned. So I had to retain a law firm uh, to be advised, which cost me $6,000 that I didn't have. And I went in to be questioned by a couple of lawyers who were you know, very attentive and I have to say very rational. You know, they asked me to talk about some things I'd posted online. Okay, the mystery was now cleared up. A particular colleague, also one of the signatories of the letter had reported me to them uh, and sent along four online writings. One, a short essay that was uh, sent to my listserv and is on my website and three facetious Facebook comments. And this woman is not a Facebook friend, nor is she on my list. I said to these lawyers, well, 
how did she get this? And they said, well, a, another colleague passed them along to her. So I know who that is because only one of them uh, fo had followed me on Facebook. And so they questioned me about my transphobia. That was the issue. I was accused of transphobia. I know this all too well. Oh, yeah. Well, this is the third rail in uh, you know, higher education and elsewhere. You can't question trans what I call transgenderism, by which I mean, and I want to be very clear about this, the ideology of transgenderism and the movement uh, that is um, very lavishly funded by people like Warren Buffett and George Soros, and there's an article uh, about this uh, that I, I uh, think is in the Federalist. You know, it's a conservative site. All it's written by a you know longtime left-wing environmentalist activist, Jennifer Blylek, who you know follows the money. And interestingly, there's a lot of big money behind this. And these are all guys with uh, you know serious interests in the, the medical industrial complex. At any rate. Uh, the little, the little essay that so uh, outraged my colleagues was about a Sprite commercial that features uh, a mother breast binding her daughter, okay? Sprite, this is Coca-Cola. And it was four paragraphs musing on the oddity of this transnational corporation that is also a notorious corporate felon. Why would they be celebrating that kind of thing? because they, they're deeply committed to inclusion and diversity? Well, obviously not. Could it be because there's an enormous market out there of thirsty uh, mothers uh, who were into breast binding their daughters? No. So uh, since this is the second example of a big corporation doing this kind of thing, because Starbucks had done one too, I speculated that the agenda here could actually be a eugenics agenda about lowering the birth rate, that the media's bizarre celebration of transgenderism, you know, which instantly got way more traction than the civil rights movement or the gay rights movement or the women's rights movements ever did. I mean, those were all authentic grassroots movements that went through you know, arduous and, and often bloody struggles before they were taken seriously by the media. And all of a sudden, transgenderism is extolled, you know, celebrated, spotlighted everywhere on TV and movies and, and so on, and in TV commercials. Okay, come on, all right, something's happening here. And I said to the lawyers, uh, you know, I have two problems with this movement. And one of them is transgender medicine radical intervention in the sexual development of children with puberty blockers and hormone treatments and even surgery. I think that that's um, a, a violation of human rights, the right to informed consent, and I'm against it. And a lot of doctors agree with me, but they lament the fact they can't even talk about it. They're accused of hate speech. The other thing that, that I find unacceptable and th this was what prompted me to post some joking comments on some stories on Facebook, is uh, biological males being allowed to compete with, you know, in girls' and women's athletics. I mean, how is that fair? These are preoperative boys, males, strapping guys with the musculature and bone density and lung capacity 
of men or you know boys squaring off against women who are at a disadvantage, which is why women and girls deserve their own athletics programs, which are now at risk of disappearing. Because basically a bunch of men are, uh, you know, physically overcoming them. I, I you know, I, I, fail, I fail to see how that's progressive in the least. Anyway, I, di I didn't get as worked up as, as this when I was talking to the lawyers, but I explained to them, those are my objections. And as evidence that I am not in the least transphobic, I noted for their information, you know, we had recently made a hire in the department in, uh, to do transgender and queer media theory. And I went to the talks, there were three candidates. I thought one of the talks was good, but the other two were preposterous. And I voted for the one that I preferred and the one that I preferred uh, accepted the job. If she's given the job, and, and, and I'm sorry, they, she, they, this person wants to be referred to as they. So they got the job. And when I heard that they got the job, I was relieved because as I say, I liked their paper and I emailed them and cordially welcomed them to the program. And we had a pleasant exchange about Northwestern where they had gotten their PhD and I had gotten my BA. And I uh, also recommended a book to them that I thought was relevant to their, uh, their talk. And the lawyers uh, realized from this that I don't have any problem with trans people, not none, not about that. Uh, at any rate, um, I beat that rap, Julian. Uh, they, they, were <laughs> they were supposed to take a week to uh, get back to me as to whether they were going to proceed with a formal inquiry and the next day they wrote to me and said, we're dropping this. Can I ask you as a matter of practice though, yeah. is there not a union representative could, that could have done this for you instead of you're having to shell out $6,000? Uh, if only, no, no. Uh, NYU does not have a, a, a faculty union. It's a private institution. And uh, it would be a dream come true. Uh, I think it would be, um, I, I, I hesitate only because you know, what I'm going through demonstrates that e even the faculty uh, within such a union could be um, no help. There is a chapter of the AAUP here uh, and they have been no help to me uh, whatsoever. Uh, let me get into that with you, but I'm, I'm gonna finish um, recounting the three strikes against me. I wanna make sure I, I keep this all clear. And then we wanna get into NYU's motives uh, you know, for any connection to this, uh, should we discover there is one. All right, so that ended. Then in June, and this is a good one, out of the blue, I got an email from my chair. And let me add, this is a guy I've always been friends with. Uh, I, I, I came to this department to teach media studies, you know, kind of on the basis of political economy, who owns it, you know, how does advertising work, et cetera. And uh, it was Neil Postman who ran the media ecology program who hired me in 97 to do that kind of work and to function as a public intellectual, which I've always seen myself as being and which I still am. And, uh, you know, after he died in the aughts, um, the department started tr transforming into something else, you know, growing in size 
and becoming increasingly theory obsessed and more and more woke, you know, over the years. Yeah. yeah. It's happening all around me. And, and this guy whose chair was one of the few of us who, who really had a more practical approach to media in terms of, you know, economics and, and, and politics and so on. If only Neil Postman were still around. Well, if, yeah, he would be canceled. You know, he'd be canceled yep. in a heartbeat. And, yep. You know, I can just see that stamp across his face, canceled. <laughs> um, no, he's, he's not here, but uh, it's like a century ago. So this guy emails me out of the blue and says, um, we have these complaints from students. This, now note the plural, complaints, plural, from students, plural in your master's propaganda course. So this is June and that course was in the fall. Uh, and so I think you should revise your course description uh, for the pro uh, propaganda, no, I, I, think, I think it was the culture industry. No, no, it was propaganda course. Uh, because uh, you know, you're, you're getting into stuff that the students don't expect, you know. Conspiracy theories. I think he actually used that phrase. I read these four quotes, these four discrete sentences. You know, he only talked about the conspiracy theories he was obsessed with. He didn't accept people who disagreed with him. You know, so I'm thinking, what? what where did these come from? Because he'd said to me, these aren't in any student evaluations. Uh. Oh. <laughs> well, I found them rather odd, but anyway, my first impulse was to start dashing off this furious self-defense. I don't do this, I don't do that. Then I realized that that was a losing proposition. I decided, look, I'm, I went back and I gathered together over 30 end of semester emails of praise and gratitude from students in that class, four of them, maybe five and several others sent them to him, I said, whoever these students are, uh, they are outliers and they seem never to have spoken up in the class, maybe with one exception. Uh, and what were the points they took up with that particular class? What were the issues that were raised? Oh, you know, it, it was my propaganda course, uh, but pitched to a master's degree level. I mean, I, essentially the same approach I take with the undergraduates, but we did, you know, gun, we talked about gun control. We talked about, um, uh, I think we actually talked about gender relations, you know, uh, feminism, things like that. Uh, you know, Zionism, uh, you, you know, the usual range of hot button issues you talk about when you talk about propaganda drives. Uh, so, okay, bear that in mind. I wrote back to him. I said, I'm not gonna revise my course descriptions, they're fine. And he backed off, all right. You never knew what the actual complaint was, like it wasn't transphobia, it wasn't racism. Uh, no, but I, I, I did come to know the whole complaint, singular, right? Because one of the exhibits in their case is the complete email from the one student who had written to complain about me. You see what they did? Yeah. They got a three paragraph or four paragraph, you know, lament or, you know, complaint about what a boorish, 
crackpot I am, you know. Uh, I, I know the student who wrote it, I know who she is. Um, some students just can't hand, handle being challenged uh, or, you know, asked to go beyond certain, you know, woke pieties and makes, you know, they can't handle it. So they, they get mad. She got mad. She wrote this email and my chair and this extremely zealous opponent of mine, a woman uh, who's been here for a very long time as I have, uh, I think at her direction, I realize now, they'd taken four sentences out of this email and represented them as four different complaints. You know, I don't think it was very smart to include that as an exhibit. All right, so this has been happening all year, right? Now, let's step back and talk less about my colleagues than about NYU. I think it's telling that the university lawyers instructed the dean to order the review despite the fact that it's legally groundless. And I base this on an excellent letter you can find on my website that an organization called FIRE, that's the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, that's devoted to academic freedom. They're in Philadelphia. They take cases like mine. They wrote a very detailed letter to Andrew Hamilton, NYU's president, chapter and verse explaining why this uh, review is completely illegal and unconstitutional and that he should step in and quash it. Of course, he ignored the letter. See, that's the way they act here. They don't say anything. <laughs> it's just radio silence from the whole institution. You know, it's straight out of Kafka. Uh, then they put it up on their blog and he didn't say anything. And then I uh, had all kinds of people write to him. He didn't answer any of them. I doubt he read any of this. I don't even know if he's involved in this. I don't think the Dean is involved in this. I say all this for two reasons. One is that I have long been an irritant at this university. It was about seven years ago that I spearheaded um, a very effective uh, movement of faculty resistance to NYU's grotesque expansion plan for Greenwich Village. They called it NYU 2031. We renamed it the Sexton Plan because we tied it, by doing so, we tied it to John Sexton, who was then the president at NYU in a kind of a lightning rod. And, uh, you know, we had 39 schools and departments to vote for statements opposing the plan. That included the business school and the economics department four Nobelists on its faculty. We had an op-ed in the Times. We had fundraisers. We had celebrity support. Uh, we sued the city for approving the plan and got a very powerful law firm to take the case pro bono. I mean, it was a really big deal. It got all the way up to the New York State Supreme Court where we lost everything in a very arbitrary way with no legal argument whatsoever. I'll get to that in a moment. But even though we technically and, and legally lost that case, uh, I think that in effect, we, we scored a victory because at this point, NYU was completing only one of the four horrendous eyesores that they wanted to cram on these two residential blocks. It's right across the street from me where the gym used to be. 
but I, I, I hear from people uh, higher up that, um, or did hear back when I heard from people that um, they're not gonna go ahead. We protracted it for three years, it became too expensive and too unpopular. So, and now that, you know, New York is um, kind of a wreck, you know, a smoldering husk of its former self. I, maybe they'll go ahead and build it anyway, but I, I think it's unlikely. Anyway, that happened. And I was very public and vocal in my criticisms of what they were doing. Also, I'm a named plaintiff in a class action suit against NYU for uh, mismanaging our retirement funds. So I've, I've never shied away from um, challenging the corporate authority. So I don't have any admirers, I don't think, among the board of trustees, which is extremely large. All told, there are over 90 of them. And they are really the cream of the crop uh, of the 1%, you know. Uh, corporate lawyers, major players in real estate, uh, you know, honchos from the governments of China and uh, Abu Dhabi. They're, they're not the kinds of people you associate with uh, liberal arts education. And they call, the sh they call the shots here. I mean, NYU is, as people say, it's a real estate company that hands out diplomas. The last thing we did, and I, I had a, a lot to do with it, it was a report called The Art of the Gouge, which was a detailed account of all the ways in which NYU squeezes money out of its students and what it spends that money on. And it is, it is eye-opening, you know, the, 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 all the tactics they use to squeeze money out of these students and their families, you know, who go to debt peonage for life. Uh, and then they spend it on, uh, first of all, uh, executive salaries for the administration, you know, who make, you know, the dean of the medical school makes well over $2 million a year, for example, maybe it's three by now. Uh, so up at the top, they make high six and seven figure salaries, um, you know, far more than the faculty make. And of course, the other thing they spend the money on is real estate. So we, we had that locally published as a little paperback and it's up on uh, naked capitalism if you wanna find the art of the gouge because even though it's some years old, it, it, it's uh, the same stuff's going on now. And um, now bear that in mind, okay? So here's what I think. I did all that, you know, I'm sure I've had a bullseye on my back since then but let's move to the present, what's happening to me now, and not just me, okay, but a lot of people at many schools. Uh, NYU is, now I'm just, I'm just proposing that NYU has some involvement with this, I believe organic and spontaneous move against me by a student and colleagues. You know, I think they are all sincere. I think that my work or what they think my work is, uh, really discomforts them, you know? They don't know anything about these issues. They only read the New York Times. So they are all propagandees to whom these counter narratives are just outrageous on their face. You know, that can't be true because if that's true, I have to rethink everything. Because as I've said often, you know, one definition of conspiracy theory is something that if true, you couldn't handle it, okay? And they are typical of the professional class in academia, 
and in journalism and in medicine and in law. They are focused on their careers. They pride themselves on being well-informed because they listen to NPR and they read the Times and maybe they watch the BBC and maybe they read the Atlantic. And uh, everything they're told is uh, actually false, you know, about not just COVID, but many issues. But see, I focus on propaganda, that's my field. So I do look beyond those media and look at who's subsidizing those media. They don't, and they can't believe that they're, they're uninformed. So a student comes to them and complains that, oh, he said this, or he's suggesting that, and they just flip out too, you know? Right, right. So they develop this image in their minds of me as this, as this you know, crazed uh, tinfoil hat wearing uh, crackpot. And it's really because my whole approach to the reality that they cherish as, as sound and stable and, and one that will permit them to thrive professionally. They can't handle having to rethink that. And they're not gonna join me in doing this kind of work obviously. So um, that's all spontaneous, you know, the transphobia thing. I mean, they all believe that, you know, they're all completely woke. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now back to our show. I read through the exchanges on your website. I went through those documents and I was floored to see the emails between your colleagues about yeah. you because yeah. transphobia figured very heavily in there. In fact, in, in, at times I wondered if this was not more about that than the mask mandate. In a way, the mask masked the actual narrative going on here because there was so much mentioned about this. Uh, one quote I have here is the 2018 platforming of a speaker so vehemently misogynistic, he drove undergraduates to tears and inspired a letter of formal complaint and it went on. Well, what, um, does that have, what does that have to do with me? Yeah, and, and, and it goes on to talk about, you know, a 2019 search for an assistant professor of queer and or transmedia. And again, this was the person that you actually supported being right. hired. Right. And then there was another mention here about your being transphobic, that you had set an army of trolls upon a student. And uh -huh. there was so much mentioned in these exchanges about gender. I was right. not surprised by the crossover, however, because as you know, as anyone who's breathing knows in academia today, that's a hot button topic. Right. And you're not allowed to question any of the ideology behind that. This has not to do with people, this has to do with ideology. Exactly, um, exactly. And that you, you distributed apparently, you know, transphobic materials or the speaker did. And it's like, what is, how do you define this? This was all very vague in their emails. But one thing, you know, that struck me, Mark, in reading this and seeing the list of signatories to the letter against you were the names of people like Arjuna Padurai. Yeah, right. I was shocked. I was like, yeah. holy cow. I had so much respect for this person as a scholar. When I saw his name, my heart sunk. Yeah. Because yeah. there's one thing to be talking about, you know, and doing really good research on 
ideology about what is now called the global south, great. But this is really a problem for me as an intellectual. Why would so many people with PhDs versed in academic debate who have their positions because of historically maintained academic freedom, disagreement, research, rebuttal, repost, what have you, sign on to a letter that so clearly wishes to not only truncate your freedom to express ideas and not so transparently veiled to have you fired, mm -hmm. why are people doing this? I mean, I can't imagine that Padurai is worried about losing his job if he were to have said, like the other eight, I'm not signing. No, of course he wouldn't have. I mean, he's kind of tuned out anyway. Um, his affidavit makes clear that he just kind of signed it because they all did and he wanted to show solidarity with them. Several of the signatories signed on for that reason. I mean, it's kind of a passive participation. Uh, you know, the, the half dozen or so who, who were really zealously going after me, um, they include the woman who's going to be the department chair ne uh, starting next year. Um, I mean, the, the, the choice, there were two people uh, vying for the chairmanship and, and both of them had signed the letter. So I just, you know, abstained obviously, but uh, yeah, it's all right. The mask thing, they you know distorted and exaggerated, but it was just a taking off point for a broader attack uh, in, in entirely woke terms that, that they pull off by conflating a few things I had posted online with what I teach in class. And I don't teach this issue in class. The one time it came up, was in an undergraduate, one of my best undergraduate classes on propaganda, uh, in the course of which, you know, there'd been some, you know, very woke statements by some of the students and others were visibly silent and obviously wanted to disagree, but were cowed, you know, cowed. So I suggested, why don't we devote a couple of weeks to social justice propaganda? You know, I mean, when, I was also having a private exchange with one of the students a gay kid from uh, Texas who was far and away one of my best students who went on to take my uh, course in the films of Stanley Kubrick. And he, he was objecting to some of the things I'd sent my list. He's on my list, you know? Um, and I, you know, we had a very civil back and forth about it. That is what su suggested to me, why don't we have a, some classes on this? I, I wrote to him and I said, would you mind if we actually make this a subject for class discussion. And he was, he was thrilled and we did. And, uh, you know, I had the class read these pieces. One of them was a, a pediatric endocrinologist giving a lecture uh, to a bunch of Christians. And he's quite frank about it. He's at Johns Hopkins. I mean, he's a very reputable physician but he was talking about the, 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 the toll, psychological and physical toll of these transition therapies for children and the uh, tragedy of his inability even to get the medical community to discuss these things in a free and open way. You know, I shared that and I shared the essay uh, on the funding of the movement by Jennifer Blylek. And she here and there, you know, misgenders some trans women, like uh, I forget her 
first name, Pritzker, the very wealthy family yeah. in Chicago. Jennifer Pritzker. Jennifer yes. Pritzker. You know, so he seized on this misgendering and complained about that. But that was really not the point of the article. But I, you know, I, I, I said, you know, I would like this argument that we're having to be an argument in class. We had the argument in class. Or the whole lesson behind the propaganda of the term misgendering. I misgender all the time because I, I taught queer theory at NYU, Mark. Oh, wow. You know? And I taught queer theory before it, as I say, it jumped the sharks because there were many sharks. Queer theory, <laughs> when I taught it, yeah. but Butler, I, there are people to show me in Gender Trouble where she makes any attempt, allusion, intimation that people should be getting cross-sex hormone surgery. This, that book was about performativity of gender. In fact, she addresses gender in the way it used to be used, if you recall, masculine and feminine. It had right. nothing to do with an internal sense of being actually in the wrong body or being, quote unquote, assigned the wrong sex at birth. This yeah, was something that developed much later. That's, that's a very good point. And Jennifer Billick's work I've jumped off on recently. I did a piece echoing a lot of her research and presenting my own because she's not a conspiracy nut. Her work is very well documented. In fact, she's now creating larger coalitions amongst people to do their own research in their own countries internationally, because this big pharma lobby is not a figment of our imagination. It is on paper. I did a piece last year when I launched Savage Minds about the funding of corporate media. And it's huge, the crossover, not only from pharma. Does anyone ever wonder why Forbes and CNN in the midst of a crisis are running one article after another about where to take your summer holidays? These are paid advertisements under right. the title of paid articles. And it might be in small print. It might not appear at all. The Guardian took $250,000 to make more transgender articles. And that was George Soros's Open Society Foundation. And the uh. Open Society Foundation is funding many of these organizations. So you have Pritzker, you have Martine Rothblatt, you've, you've got a whole list of these people who are billionaires funding the lobby. This is not an hypothesis. This is documented. The yes. HRC and the ACLU, as you well know, is now running this stuff. It, the HRC is no longer representing gay men and women. I'm interviewing shortly the former head of the HRC, who's actually going to speak about this with oh, wow. me, because this is a huge shift in a lobby that ran out of a mandate. Gay men were no longer dying after 1996. Yes. AIDS was no longer a gay male disease. What do we do with our organization? I saw this happen. I did volunteer research in gay men's health crisis in New York in the mid-90s. They had that question posed. I was part of the project. We had huh. to make focus groups to ask their clients if they thought that GMHC should change its name or not. Hence wow. today, it's GMHC. And if you scratch the surface and ask, what does that mean? You know, you might find out, but the, the gay men's health crisis of the 90s has all but disappeared from its formal title. So huh. you've, you've got, you know, huge lobbies making what were once functioning NGOs on X subject, but once that subject goes away, they have to find a new mandate. The new mandate for many gay and lesbian and bisexual organizations around the world, including Stonewall in the UK, shifted towards transgender persons in the late 90s and early noughts. And the funding is clear. So Jennifer's research 
is quite good. And there needs to be more into this because effectively we have to start asking why universities like NYU and many others and human rights organizations that are ostensibly standing for the rights of people like me, why, what does being gay have to do with being transgender? Uh, absolutely nothing. I would go further and say that just as, you know, in effect, uh, transgenderism as an ideology is misogynistic. I believe that it is misogynistic. Uh, I, I think it's also homophobic. And I believe that Stonewall UK has, has split over this because if, if, if you have a, a child who appears to be gay, why not just let that child grow up and be a gay person? You know, why do you have to subject that child to this irreversible, uh, you know, and toxic medication and surgery, you know, to turn that, what would have been a, you know, a, a, a gay man into a kind of simulacrum of a woman. You know, I, I, I think they're, they're not just unrelated, but they're kind of opposed to each other. Oh, absolutely, because now you have all these laws coming out about no transgender conversion therapy, but wait a second, the conversion therapy of one is the affirmation of the other. Right. That's the problem. They're completely, They're completely at, at odds. odds. I've always been opposed to conversion therapy. I think it's a form of psychological torture. And I don't see how this even more radical, uh, 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 I don't know what to call it, uh, therapy uh, is, is acceptable. I just don't. I, Julian, I, I really would like you to send me all of your own work on this, um, you know, because I'm delighted that you're so heavily into it. And um, I agree that, you know, I, I, I think that the corporate and state appropriation of transgenderism has, has, has served a number of purposes. Clearly uh, it has, you know, maintained the funding stream for these nonprofits, as you say. And I wanna add that my friend, Steve Jimenez uh, was, you know, viciously attacked uh, by the gay rights lobby. He is himself a gay man who wrote this terrific uh, book about the killing of Matt Shepard. It's called The Book of Matt. And uh, media matters and gay groups uh, went after him. They called him a conspiracy theorist. Uh, you know, they called him uh, a traitor to his, his kind. Simply, I mean, the book is irrefutable. He went, he went to Laramie out of sympathy to Matt Shepard to write an account of the hate crime that killed him and discovered to his amazement that it was not a hate crime. It was something else that had to do with the meth trade in, in Laramie, which is a big problem in the gay community, you know, uh, you know, which has devastated parts of the gay community. So he, he, he wrote this amazing book. And, uh, you know, I have always been drawn to people who come under that kind of attack and whose work is blacked out. I, that's the kind of person I have come to my classes he came to a class, it was a terrific class. Uh, and I've never had anybody come who gave an anti-transgender rant and it drove kids to tears. I mean, that, I just don't know what they're talking about. But the point is, you know, you and I are talking about this issue in precisely the way everybody should be talking about it. Whose interest is it serving to milk it for funding and to force it down everybody's throat? I mean, it, it does certainly help maintain the funding stream for those lobbies, for those groups, 
I believe it also helps to further splinter what passes for the left in the United States. Uh, you know, it's long been an imperial strategy to uh, balkanize the opposition, divide them and have them fighting among themselves and have them at each other's throats. I should say, have us at each other's throats instead of being at their throats, if you see what I mean. Oh, I hear you. You know, I interviewed Jason uh, Hill recently. He's a right. philosophy professor in Chicago and he also faced the same and he is also a black gay man. And he's getting a lot of blowback from some of the comments he's made similar to ours here. And the larger question is, not only who is this serving economically, but there's an ideological network within the economic network. Because we know that you prop up a gender studies department and historically those departments have done away with women's studies departments. This is also well-documented. Loads of feminists have written about this. I didn't know that. Yeah, and it's, it's quite shocking to see that there's a victimology narrative behind all of this. So of course, when the local chapter of ex-gay organization can run its annual Matthew Shepard Memorial, they can gain money from that. So of oh, course, indeed. this book would have put asunder any pretenses to such fundraising. Oh, I compare absolutely. this to what I saw in Haiti. Just minutes before the camera crews come in from CNN or any other large network, I, I witnessed people being paid a lot of money for them, 50 US dollars to take down their tents from a certain NGO that had given them tents and they put up new tents of the NGO that wanted to show for the world that their money was going to good use. Hence, oh they God. get more donors. And this oh. happens. So this was post-2010 earthquake in the first months after. I witnessed this once and I heard from witnessing it and speaking to people on the ground, this happens regularly. So wow. why on earth are gay organizations taking up the mandate of something that has zero to do with it? I compare this to my being part of the American Anthropological Association. And then tomorrow I get an email saying, we're gonna add stevedores to the list. So you're now anthropologists and stevedores. You know, like what? I would raise my hand. I'm just making an example, that didn't happen. Oh, oh. Oh, okay. But <laughs> it's just like, but where were we? Like when this happened, uh, the T was added. I was living in Europe at the time. But when I got back to New York, the first thing I asked of my friends is what's the T got to do with us? Like, right. And that discussion was very awkward even then in the late 90s, early knots. It was all about, well, you know how we were discriminated against? We want to show solidarity. And well, some trans people are gay too. And I'm like, well, yes, if you believe in ruby slippers and there's no place like home. I mean, let's be real. There's something that's ideologically amiss here because we, yeah. we are oh, gay indeed. because same sex. And now we somehow replace sex with identity of willing it to be. And I had problems with right. this from early on. And this is when I stopped doing queer theory, by the way, because it became something else. And I thought, wait, queer huh. theory was supposed to be about this kind of visibility of other sexualities, of other desires and bringing to the fore brilliant filmmakers like Marlon Riggs, you know, his work on black yeah. homosexuality in the US was groundbreaking. And we would not have seen that were it not for queer studies, okay? 
at the right. time, right? right? So, I mean, what? Right. I, I'm really just floored by what you've been through because, again, you know, I, you and I, I think we had a few uh, words on social media around the Michael Rechtenwald uh, incidents as well, and I'm, I was shocked by what Michael was going through at the time because it's like, wait. Now we see what's the real forces here. The customer is king. I keep coming back to this because when I was teaching at the University of Montreal from 2003, I was at one point sent an email as were all my colleagues that from now on, these students were to be referred to as clients in, in this certain department's mm -hmm. nomenclature mm -hmm. with us. And I was like, oh my God, yeah. like what is going on? So, you know, the capitalization of higher education has brought in the client and we're the producer, I guess. Well, yeah, yeah. I want to, you know, foreground a couple of things in my case against the backdrop of the discussion that we've just had about transgenderism, which indeed uh, I think accounts for the, the fire uh, in the bellies of my attackers, it, which is bizarre, you know, because, um, you know, they're all women oddly, and, and several of them are, are, are lesbians. Um, and yet they've somehow seized on transgenderism as a kind of religion and, and completely blind to the, to the contradictions between you know, feminism and transgenderism, et cetera. You know, the threat of my even bringing it up for discussion uh, would in their minds put them at risk. You know, this would harm them. Uh, the fact that you know somebody like a Potteri comes out of a, a a more vigorous and healthier academic context in which debate was common, uh, you know, that's not the context we're operating in now. They don't debate, uh, not not issues of this magnitude, and issues with this much practical, real-world importance, and with such real-world consequences. You don't discuss those things you shut them down, you know, the, the discussion's too uncomfortable for them, they can't do it. That's, that's their thing. NYU, I think is, and I, it's not just NYU, Julian, it's um, universities all over the place, uh, and not just in this country, have um, found a way to shield themselves from criticism of their predatory practices and policies, their top heavy administrations, their, you know, inordinate, expensive uh, tuition, etc. Their, their, you know, real estate adventurism, their engagement in, in toxic and unhealthy research and so on, their, their, you know, symbiotic relationship with big pharma, you know, they're closest to the intelligence agencies. They shield themselves against any and all criticism of this kind of thing by putting on a kind of social justice armor and making a huge deal out of, uh, you know, George Floyd or this latest shooting. You know, we're getting all kinds of emails from, you know, the Dean, you know, offering counseling to people who are distraught over the shooting in Minneapolis. If you yeah. think about it, that's yeah. insane, yeah. you know? Suddenly they're gonna help us deal psychologically with this trauma, right? Meanwhile, they're, you know, blindly and relentlessly rolling out a big vaccination program for the student body with substances that aren't even vaccines at all. There's something else. They're a kind of gene altering elixir that's experimental and that young people don't even need. 
And you know, the number of black celebrities who have recently died after their vaccinations is pretty staggering. You know, Hank Aaron, Marvin Hagler, DMX, uh, you know, this uh, woman who was a, a, an MSNBC anchor who boasted on TV about having gotten the shot, you know, suddenly dropped dead after not feeling well a few weeks later. She's completely healthy. Midwin Charles is her name. You know, if Black Lives Matter, you know, why not question the universities uh, engaging in a practice and participating in a big drive to overcome the vaccine hesitancy of young people and black right, people, right? right? You, know, uh, cry, you know, these crocodile tears over the latest victim of a police shooting. I'm sorry, but this is a kind of corporate propaganda, okay? This is my wheelhouse, okay? I am qualified to talk about this and I have the right to talk about it openly in my classrooms and outside my classrooms, online and off, right? Because I do see myself as a public intellectual, okay? And I challenge my colleagues to match my activism with their own, all right? They all consider themselves terribly left and politically correct. Well, I have news for them. They are only propping up a completely destructive neoliberal system. They are all pro-lockdown, okay? As far as I'm concerned, that is unacceptable. The lockdown policies have killed countless numbers of poor people of color and white people all over the world through hunger, through malnutrition, through drug overdoses, through suicide, through domestic abuse, through, through homicides, yeah, yeah. you know, it's spiked in New York City. I mean, how can, they, how can they claim to be the least bit progressive when they uphold all that and, you know, insist that everybody should have equal access to a vaccine that was, you know, rushed into production, that was inadequately tested, and, and that doesn't even prevent infection or transmission with COVID-19, okay? The fact is that it's because of Trump and their hatred of Trump that they take the positions they take. I mean, that's how sophisticated their politics are, you know? If they would talk to some average people, some working people, and see what they have to say about all of this. They might learn something, but they are inside a kind of neoliberal professionalist bubble, okay? And they use the discourse of civil rights, you know, uh, to persecute people like me, okay? And deny my academic freedom. Well, they get all bent out of shape when Zoom canceled a presentation by Lila Khaled under Zionist pressure. This was last year. I was completely appalled by that. I sent out stuff about it. Oh, they got together. They had a special meeting about this. They put out a formal statement of protest, all the while, you know, conspiring to have me fired for disagreeing with them. So, I mean, you know, the, the lack of self-knowledge here is, is just, is awesome, yeah. you know? Uh, and it just shows us that we, we need to get beyond the stale and now, you know, um, uh, really kind of dangerously obstructive delusion that this is kind of a left versus right yep. thing. The whole left right divide, we got to get past it, you know, liberals, progressives and conservatives of conscience, you know, who base their actions on principle and not on tribalist identities. They, everybody has to unite, you know, there has to be there has to be a grand alliance of people who really care about making everybody's life better, you know, that are opposed to this looming totalitarian crackdown with vaccine passports, you know, and mandatory vaccinations. 
this has got to stop because it's us all versus the elites that are pulling the strings. Absolutely. And what's shocking is many people aren't aware, but New York University costs how much currently per year? Oh, it's in the 50s somewhere, I think. Right. It was in the 50s when I was there, too. So you're oppressing people who are either going into debt for much of their lives or, and is often the case in my experience, who have families and the money to pay that. That's so right. you're oppressing people of a certain class. Again, Jason Hill referred to this as well. There's a false narrative going on where the people who are defending some of these reprehensible crackdowns on free speech claiming to be victims are in fact not at all victims. That's right. Oh, I can't. Listen, the, you know, there's, there's, there's effective war propaganda tends to be projective, you know, in the psychological sense or the psychoanalytic sense. But you, you, it, it is a tactic to attack your enemy for something you're actually doing yourself or have done yourself or plan to do yourself, right? That's very disarming. All right, I can give you several examples. It is a tactic. At the same time though, it's also a symptom, you see. Somebody like Hitler sincerely believed that world Jewry was plotting to exterminate the Aryans, okay? He believed this. So that the Holocaust was in his mind, a defensive measure to preempt the Jewish attack on Germany by wiping out the Jews. I mean, this is something he believed. The last words of his that are recorded before he killed himself uh, were his you know, reaffirmation of the need to fight you know, the the, the stranglehold or the threat of world Jewry. So this was sincere. So, you know, the best war propagandists are sort of the most projective, the most paranoid and, and the most narcissistic, and the most prone to say, you know, you're doing that to me when it's the other way around. It's like an abusive relationship. Well, I'm struck by the fact that my colleagues, first of all, claim that my petition was an attack on the department they use those very words. Yes. It doesn't even it doesn't even mention the department, but it was an attack on them. So I attacked them, and they accused me me of attacking the student who attacked me on Twitter. They say, as you as you noted, I got my army of trolls. I, I don't have any army of any kind. I have some followers, okay, uh, and they did what they wanted to do. I didn't egg them on to attack anybody. This is Twitter, okay? This is a Department of Media Studies. Do they not know what Twitter is? You tweet something <laughs> controversial, you get attacked. Okay, I got attacked. I got really viciously attacked. I mean, people were, you know, joking about my suicide. The media attacked me. So this raises the question, how am I the oppressor here? My, my chair calls me up and says, you know, you're an authority figure and the students are under your sway. So they've got this notion that because I'm an older white male, I'm some kind of 19th century patriarch, you know, with a riding crop in my hand, and I'm pushing around these poor, you know, subjects in my classroom who are all victims of my, you know, masculinist sway. This is complete crap. I mean, the power here is all on the other side of this fight, okay? I am the victim of um, a woke mobocracy in my department working in league with an extremely powerful institution. And this is the crucial thing we haven't got to yet that has very deep connections to big pharma, to the medical industrial complex, 
that is heavily invested in the COVID narrative, right? Uh, I think it's Biden's COVID advisor is somebody who was on the faculty at NYU, right? Uh, they hired Artie Kaplan here, who is a bioethicist notorious for his shilling for the, the pharma cartel. They hired him. They then fired Mary Holland, this terrific uh, uh, legal scholar, a tenured member of the law school, who is a very prolific critic of vaccine mandates. They pushed her out. She's now working at Children's Health Defense uh, for Bobby Kennedy. I mean, it's kind of, you know, the Nazis had a term for what they did to institutions in Germany after their takeover. And I'm sure you know it, it's Gleichschaltung, like streamlining. There's a kind of streamlining going on at NYU where even every member of the faculty has to toe the line on, on COVID orthodoxy and you can't even question any of the, the aspects of that, of that narrative. You're not allowed to question them. So that my teaching my students, not just to believe them and obey, teaching them to just examine the scientific rationale for these things is, is as grave an offense as it used to be in the South to teach slaves how to read. You know, they want a compliant workforce here, right? And they, they basically seem to have it. I mean, I don't know how I ended up being the only person on, on this faculty uh, you know, to take these stands. I mean, I seem to be one of the few academics anywhere who's taking these stands, which is kind of, you know, startling to me. But I have heard from a lot of other people who are suffering, you know, uh, uh, fate similar to mine. And to them, you know, I can only say, you've just got to say no, you know, if it's at all possible, if you can do that, you know, without endangering yourself unduly, uh, you've got to fight back because, uh, this is going to sound so corny. It's going to sound so right wing, but we really have on the left. We have indeed for decades taken certain basic freedoms for granted. We have taken for granted First Amendment protection of free speech. We have taken for granted, you know, Fourth Amendment protection of the right to assemble. Uh, we have taken advantage uh, uh, of all these rights. And, and never realized that they could be taken away from us. And we're on the brink of that happening and of its happening under democratic hegemony, you know, capital D democratic hegemony, that Joe Biden is now musing that maybe some of those things in the Bill of Rights, you know, we don't need anymore, you know? Well, it's also no coincidence that NYU is the wealthiest private landowner in New York City. Right. So uh, I think they, they are indeed. It's either them or Columbia. Columbia owns more land, but because of the value of Greenwich ah. Village, NYU's the richer. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, yeah, money talks at NYU. Uh, and money, let me add, uh, money, NYU's money has tentacles around the state bench. Uh, you know, I learned this uh, from my two previous experiences with NYU's legal apparatus. So even though everybody tells me, my friends all say that my case is extremely strong and that theirs is uh, kind of pathetic, and I'm sure you agree, they don't have a case. I am not at all sanguine that the judge here will necessarily um, deny their motion to dismiss. And I am psychologically prepared to, to hear that indeed he's dismissing the case. And I'm not gonna give up. This raises another issue though. I mean, the letters from your colleagues and the defamation therein is all based on this notion 
that you told students not to mask up, though you had over 50 letters of support from your students. So uh, where does this stand legally? I mean, you didn't, you were talking about propaganda. You were talking about question everything. Yeah. And this somehow was perverted into on Zoom, ironically, like I'm not wearing a mask talking to you, uh, that now you are telling people to unmask. How does this square with well, rational right. thought? Because you're saying in a propaganda course, especially, that we need to question all of the narratives we've been handed over COVID-19. And suddenly your colleagues have jumped onto the bandwagon believing maybe the one person that said, you said not to wear a mask. This is insanity. Well, it is insanity. I, I don't, the student who attacked me didn't, I don't think she said that I discouraged them from wearing masks. I don't think she even made that charge because as I say, she wasn't present for the full discussion of masking. That was the first week. She wasn't there. She came later. And she was only there for a resum brief resumption of that discussion, which was all about that psychology today attack on Denis Rancourt. So it was about propaganda. I never discouraged anybody from wearing masks. I'm claiming that the consensus of the most rigorous scientific studies is that they're ineffective. Right. I don't make proclamations. You'll see that in their letter and throughout their affidavits and so on, you know, they claim that I came into classes saying uh, Sand Sandy Hook didn't happen or the moon landing was a hoax or 9-11 was an inside job. That's a fantasy. That's a projection of some kind. Uh, I, I, I never make these proclamations, nor do I make a secret of my own views, but I, I, I present my views in terms of what evidence I have found to support them, you know? So, you know, I was once asked in a class, what do you think happened on, with the moon landing? You know, I said, well, you know, and I told the story that I used to, when I used to lecture on conspiracy theory, I would always say, it's true that some conspiracy theories are crazy. For example, the idea that the moon landing was a hoax is obviously crazy. So at one such occasion afterwards, a guy came up to me very pleasant and he said, have you ever um, actually looked into this on the moon? And I was really embarrassed because I hadn't, I, I'd never read a word about it. So I started to read and to watch documentaries and I discovered to my astonishment that um, it, it, as far as I'm concerned, it could not possibly have happened. And it was clearly all those, all that footage and stuff was all shot in the studio. Um, I, you know, that's what the evidence tells me. It might tell you something else. So, you know, that's how I answered the question. I said, you know, I, it, so then the following day or, you know, the next week, uh, the class begins and we're not talking about something else. And this uh, woman, young woman in the back of the room, you know, sh shoots her hand up into the air. I said, yeah, she said, the moon landing. Oh my God. That's all she said. <laughs> she, she had spent the week weekend looking into it. And when you look into it, you know, you often find that what you want to think uh, is, is, is baseless. So, you know, all this stuff about Sandy Hook, I mean, they're all, you know, this is all received opinion, you know, they're not doing any independent thinking to address your point. So this claim that I told students to take their masks off is, is just a lie that came out of nowhere. I think that they wanted to hear that I had said that 
So in their minds, what they were told I said about what to read about masks translated into you should not mask, you know, just as what they read online by me translated in their minds into my using my classrooms to propound those views, you see. Right. I mean, you saw from the emails, they actually thought that I, I, they wanted to, to make it impossible for me to vote uh, for one of the candidates in that job search. I mean, I mean their, their assumption of my malevolence is really amazing. You know, malevolence and shrewd plotting, that's pure projection. I mean, they were malevolently engaged in plotting against me this whole time. They claim you have intellectual conversation with avowed transphobes to discredited alt-right media figures that he dubiously cites for evidence to white supremacists who circulate and reproduce his claims. Who is that? I'm just quoting from some of the emails I read through. Oh, yeah. And there was another claim that you said carrying your cell phone in your pocket will damage your health. The emails between your colleagues, they seem to be quite obsessed with you, Mark. I know, they're getting something to talk about. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up, that, that cell phone thing. And I'm not gonna be shy here. It's all uh, you know, public. This is Lisa Gittleman who um, recounts in an email to the chair that a student had come in and told her that I said that, you know, uh, I, 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 uh, you shouldn't carry your cell phone in your pocket. But this came up because I was talking about the way the press has misrepresented the issue because it's a propaganda course. And that, you know, because the cell phone industry is enormous, the press has played down or blacked out the real health risks of, of, of cell phone use, which are in uh, Apple's, you know, the fine print of, 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 of the, uh, you know, uh, what is it, a brochure or the instruction manual that comes with your cell phone. I mean, it's, it's not, she treats this as, a, as some kind of crackpot delusion. I mean, it just, you know, maybe she should go home and take out that thing and read it because this is a scientific fact. You shouldn't carry your cell phone in your pocket. You shouldn't sleep with it next to your head and you shouldn't talk with it jammed up against your ear. You know, it's led to a, a, a spike in, in rates of, uh, uh, I forget the name of the uh, brain cancer that it causes. I have a friend who came down with it. This is all established fact. And she treats this as, as insanity, as a conspiracy theory. And it's not even clear from her email that the student had complained about this. It's just that she had a discussion with a student who told her I had said these things. So that's, you know, that's the level of sophistication we're dealing with here. And the level of the, the lack of self-awareness that would, that would you know, prompt her to provide this as an exhibit, it just makes her look like an ignoramus. You know? And I only hope that she's careful with her cell phone. You know? We know that when cell phones became quite popular, there was a lot of discussion in the media about the cancer risk to them, to include various forms of brain cancers. And my own uncle told me not to carry the cell phone on me. And he was a vice president of Motorola at the time. Wow. He himself had a cancer that he's since been quite careful about his use of cell phones. And right. so... You know, these aren't conspiracy theories. Otherwise, why would numerous universities have conducted studies about this subject, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, and 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 indeed, you know, that kind of press attention uh, has has disappeared, right? Because the carriers are an enormous force uh, in terms of advertising revenue, and Verizon uh, has partnered up with the New York Times on a five G project. Uh, you know, so the fix is in. I mean, this is again, this is a media studies department. And to have to explain that powerful advertisers have long dictated what gets covered and what doesn't to a colleague in the media studies department is really kind of shocking. I mean, this is the reason why for decades, nobody knew about the health risks of smoking because the tobacco industry was the biggest advertiser uh, throughout the media in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. And it was the Reader's Digest that was the first uh, you know, major publication to report anything about the research linking cigarette smoking with lung disease. And that's only because DeWitt Wallace, you know, the very right-wing owner of the Reader's Digest had a thing about smoking. And so he would not accept any tobacco advertising in the Reader's Digest. Interestingly, the American edition, okay? He did accept tobacco advertising in foreign editions of Reader's Digest. But the fact is that broke the dam, you know? And that's a good way to illustrate the reason why the press now uh, blacks out all the, the truth about these vaccines and uh, has downplayed all evidence of the dangerousness of drugs like Vioxx and others, you know, opioids, all these things uh, have, have happened. You know, this tremendous harm has been done by big pharma because they uh, have made it a policy to bribe the media through advertising you know, which is a practice that uh, Upton Sinclair discusses in detail in his book, The Brass Check. Um, this is like 1917, you know, <laughs> and they don't know this. I mean, you know, so the problem here is, is the over-specialization of academic research generally. Uh, you know, these people zero in on an extremely, uh, you know, uh, abstruse and, and uh, I mean, they have a, a, a very narrow focus on very particular issues, which they discuss in the most abstruse terms. Either they're writing for an audience of, you know, maybe a few dozen others in their field, and they're not looking at the, the bigger picture, right? I mean, I, I got into media, you know, I have a doctorate in English. I was in the Renaissance uh, in grad school. My dissertation's on Shakespeare and Castiglione. And I, I got into media study on my own uh, via film study, which I also did on my own and came to see more and more that, that you know, a kind of uh, media literacy is, is essential to the functioning of democracy, that people have to know how the media works and who controls it and what its interests are. And then that got me into propaganda study, you know, I, I've always been very straightforward about this, that I, I engage in media studies as a kind of civic responsibility and see my work online, interviews like this, my writing, as well as my teaching as all part of the same project. So I, I you know, I, I'm kind of an oddball in the academy. I got into it in a curious way. I didn't undergo professional training in communications, you see? So I wasn't, I wasn't shaped uh, 
to know which issues not to bring up. Yeah, I don't know if you know the book Disciplined Minds by Jeff Schmidt. No, I do not. I heard about it from another podcast I was doing with Jason Bosch, who I think is a mutual Facebook friend. Right. And he brought it up in our conversation. It, it's a great book about how professional training uh, tends to uh, ensure that the people who end up uh, accepted into the higher professions, you know, the academy, law, medicine, journalism, they're all, they're all sort of tamed ideologically, right? They're all kind of taught where not to go, see? So that by the time you've been through J school, for example, you're gonna know enough, you know, not to go to, uh, you know, the Washington Post and suggest a big expose of CIA, uh, you know, malfeasance, you know, because they, uh, they get tons of money from the CIA. <laughs> That's not even a secret anymore. Um, you, you learn how to be discreet, right? You, you, you learn to mind your P's and Q's. It's just a kind of code, an instinct. You internalize it and you don't even really know you're doing it. So, you know, the irony here is that people will enter these professions out of genuine idealism. You know, young physicists, for example, will really want to, you know, do breakthroughs in, uh, I mean, be, be, be responsible for new understandings of, you know, physics, how the universe works. Um, well, they end up having that kind of beat out of them, you know, by the time they've taken their qualifying exams and been accepted into the higher reaches of the program and so on. Uh, they're okay, you know, their elders see them as okay, they're acceptable. And uh, it's a very, very nuanced study of that kind of thing. So Schmidt is, is one of these intellectuals, kind of like C. Wright Mills, you know, mm -hmm. uh, or Thorsten Veblen, right? Okay. I mean, these are my role models, if I have any. I guess Neil Postman too. But you, you, you know, you're 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 in the academy, but not of it, you know. And I guess that that kind of describes me, and that accounts for the loathing that my colleagues feel for me. I was thinking about Neil Postman when he warned that Huxley was, I'm quoting Postman, trying to tell us that what afflicted the people in Brave New World was not that they were laughing instead of thinking, but that they did not know what they were laughing about and why they had stopped thinking. And yeah. I think to that quite often in this era, because your case all the people being harassed over transactivism around the planet. Now it's not just the university, it's journalists, it's people in NGOs who say, hmm, we need to step back from that. Doctors who, I don't know if you've read Abigail Schreier's book, but she's gotten a lot of harassment over her book. Amazon has delisted any kind of advertising around her book. And yeah. she's been made persona non grata amongst people on the left. If you say no, her name, yeah. you might as well say, name it. Is it Hitler? Is it Hannibal Lecter? Everything yeah. becomes so hyperbolic that right. people aren't really thinking. No, that's, that's right. And so how do we come to this, Mark, where we have now a hyper-educated population? I think more people go to university now than ever in the history of the United States. And people are getting around the most anti-scientific thinking. Um, I'm sure you know of the Great Barrington Declaration. I've sure. interviewed two of the writers of that declaration on this show. 
And they too have had their own pushbacks and they're quite cogent in what they say. They even I, say that the way that virus mitigation has occurred has actually extended the pathway of this virus oh, that absolutely. otherwise may very well have already been put out of existence. We right. don't hear many critiques at all about why CNN and Forbes are running one paid advertisement as a quote-unquote journalistic article about travel to the Bahamas. But no, that's allowed to go unchecked. No one's questioning why the super rich, where I am, you can't go anywhere without a piece of paper. But if you want to travel to Sweden to go maskless on your holiday right now, you can. Oh, absolutely. No one's worrying about airports being closed. So there's a lot to question about the way mitigation efforts have happened, the way the information about masks has been no, yes, good, bad. I mean, of course, we're supposed to question because that's what the governments have done. They told us, you know, Fauci said no. Remember? <laughs> I, I remember very well. In fact, I'm, yeah, okay. Let, let me be blunt here, okay? Uh, I mean, this is a, such a suggestive um, line of, of discussion now. And I, I just want to repeat, Julian, I'm very grateful to you for having me on, um, you know, tell my story uh, and to, you know, sort of elaborate on it and its implications, okay? What, what you're bringing up now uh, could not be more important because what the media now has done, and let's bear in mind that it is now uh, concentrated to an unprecedented degree, okay? That some five corporations, uh, have complete control over some 90% of the content we take in. And most of the so-called left press has been compromised by dubious funding from um, resources like the Ford Foundation, uh, you know, long known as a CIA pass-through, uh, the Open Society Institute, the Rockefeller Foundation, et cetera. Much of the left press, so that Amy Goodman now sounds uh, as deranged on the subject of vaccination as, as uh, you know, the most rabid big pharma uh, uh, tool, you know? What they're all doing, what they have done systematically now for over a year has been to push, aggressively push, one toxic recourse after another, while just as avidly censoring, suppressing, blacking out all contrary news that, I mean, contrary to the official narrative, you know, all such news that would actually save many lives, all right? I mean, they're pushing these, these dubious and destructive policies with such relentlessness and in so censorious a way that you cannot really, you cannot make the argument that it's by accident or due to incompetence. We have the entire population of whole countries being required to wear masks all the time. This has never happened in the history of, of disease. There is no hospital where the personnel wear their masks all day. There is no hospital where doctors and nurses go jogging and biking in masks all day, okay? There is no excuse or reason for having children wear masks. God help us, I've even seen pictures of people holding babies wearing masks, babies and children 
have strong natural immunity to COVID-19, and there is no known instance of a child transmitting it to another child. And yet we have schools in which the kids are masked all day and sitting in circles on the floor six feet apart. This is a, a recipe for lasting psychological harm and retarded social development, okay? This is criminal, okay? The hypoxia that's caused by masking uh, can do brain damage. The hypercapnia, which is you know carbon dioxide overload, is toxic, and the weakening of our immune systems is only going to make people more susceptible to respiratory viruses. Here we have these mask mandates at the same time that OSHA has rules, strict rules. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration has strict rules as to which kinds of people should not be required to mask. They include asthmatics, they include diabetics, they include people with hypertension, they include people with COPD, okay? Now, what population has excessively high rates of asthma and diabetes and hypertension? It's African-Americans, okay? So people like my colleagues slinking around in masks present as an exhibit against me the title page of my essay, Masking Ourselves to Death. That's, that's proof, in their eyes, that's proof that I'm a menace. Did they read the essay? Can they grapple with any of the evidence I bring up in that essay? I, I strongly recommend the essay, by the way. It's on my website. I'm very proud of it. It went up in September and it talks about masking from many different points of view and on the basis of long meticulous research that they wouldn't even bother to do. All they know is what they've been told. We should all wear masks, okay? So their kids are wearing masks. That alone is bad for people's health. Last spring, in, a, in, a, in an English language Chinese publication, there was the story that three Chinese teenagers in three separate provinces of China had all dropped dead in their gym classes, running laps while wearing masks. Because of this, the authorities in those provinces changed the rules and, and banned requiring masks among children doing exercise. That story was reported in Japan. Story was reported, I think, by one TV station in Indonesia, and it was reported, or I should say misreported, in the Daily, uh, New York Daily News and the New York Post. It made no news anywhere else. I asked a Chinese student of mine to do a search of the media more generally, the Chinese media, to see if there were other stories like that, and she found three more, okay? Three adults did their morning exercises with masks on, Two died and one slipped into a coma, maybe dead, may have recovered, I don't know. But the fact is any health system, right? Any CDC, any World Health Organization, any uh, press outlet that does not make those risks clear, okay, is actually abetting, uh, uh, you know, deaths, right? This is a potentially lethal practice it is bad for people, and on top of which, they don't even prevent transmission of respiratory viruses. They don't do anything, right? And yet you have people who will become violent at the sight of somebody outdoors in the sunlight where viruses instantly perish, right? They see somebody with a mask, without a mask approaching them, they become sometimes violent, but often extremely hostile, irrationally, tribally, hostile, okay? Now, 
why are we all being told to take these vaccines? Well, we've known for months that officially hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. You know, after all, Trump touted it, so it can't be true. And Dr. Fauci says the evidence for its effectiveness is only anecdotal. That's a lie. That's just a falsehood. There are many, many clinical um, uh, practices and hospitals that have been using it with great success. There are many studies of its effectiveness, you know, peer-reviewed studies of its effectiveness. And, you know, it's used readily all over India and Pakistan, where there's a lot of malaria. So hydroxychloroquine is available over the counter there. Now, why hasn't COVID-19, this supposedly um, unprecedentedly lethal and contagious illness, killed millions of Indians in such a, a densely populated country, and Pakistanis too, because they can take hydroxychloroquine right away when they get sick and they get over it. The same is true of ivermectin. These things work, they're cheap. There's no need for a shot. They're not talking about any of this, right? I mean, I could go on and on. There's all kinds of things that could be saving people's lives. We don't hear about them. There are all kinds of things that people are doing that are shortening their lives, okay? They're lining up to get this shot. There's a, a propaganda blitz, the likes of which I have never seen going on at this moment, involving all the Hollywood studios, all the networks, all these celebrities, these musicians and so on, I'll roll up your sleeves. And there's Bill Gates telling us to do it. An experimental vaccine that was rushed to market, okay? That has been killing people demonstrably all over the place. The death rate in Israel, since the vaccine program was rolled out there in December has doubled, okay? Vaccine deaths have doubled there since the program started. There's a group of Israelis that are filing suit before the International Criminal Court. They're suing the Israeli government for violating the Nuremberg Code, okay? Mm. You cannot forcibly inject people against their will. And that includes saying, well, you can't work unless you get this shot. Or you can't go to school unless you get the shot, okay? Whatever happened to my body, my choice, right? Where, where is every feminist on the planet, right? Not screaming that this is a violation of bodily integrity, okay? Does that only apply to abortion? Should it not apply here too? Forcible injection? Uh, but what is this, Auschwitz? I mean, it, really, it, it takes my breath away, okay? So what I'm saying here is, to you, you know, in answer to your last point, that here we have the intelligentsia, right? The professional class throughout academia and the media, including the world of publishing, you know, all closing their eyes to and abetting this really genocidal set of policies. And it, it requires that we really brace ourselves and take a good long, deep, historical deep dive into the history of the eugenics movement, right? Which the Rockefellers funded lavishly along with the Carnegies and other plutocrats at the beginning of the 20th century. It's a movement that Adolf Hitler studied avidly in Germany. He started a correspondence with some of the eugenicists here. And the Rockefellers also funded some of the German eugenicists who went on to help with the final solution under Hitler. Well, uh, in the 30s, when Hitler was rolling out his eugenicist government program, uh, the eugenicists over here applauded, you know? And these included some really illustrious people, you know? H.G. Uh, Wells, George Bernard Shaw, 
Oliver Wendell Holmes, certainly Margaret Sanger, as many of us know, and that's what Planned Parenthood is really all about. Uh, who else? Oh, W.E.B. Du Bois. I mean, there were some African-Americans who, who thought that the talented 10th, as you know, to use his phrase, should be more prolific, while the sort of unfit should be encouraged to have fewer children. Well, you know, a lot of these people were really happy to see what Hitler was doing because at last here was a head of state who understood the eugenics program. Well, the Holocaust, you know, kind of took the wind out of their sails, right? It's kind of bad press for this um, exterminationist movement. So they pulled in their horns and they kind of took a, a breather and then reemerged in the early 50s as uh, the population control movement. And it starts, I guess, in 1952 with the uh, appearance of the Population Council, which Larry Rock uh, Lawrence Rockefeller founded. And from then on, they started to find subtler and more attractive ways to present their program. And it, it, it came to be regarded as a green thing. I don't know if you remember the population bomb by Paul Ehrlich. Yes, it was yes. pre presented as a, an argument to save the planet. And, you know, it's, it goes back to Thomas Malthus, you know, it's all Malthusian. And it's, it was driven by uh, the, a plutocratic elite all along, still including the Rockefellers, Julian, still. And Bill Gates Sr. was a very uh, close uh, associate of the Rockefellers and a board member, uh, a member of the board on Planned Parenthood and not because he was a feminist, and Bill Gates told uh, uh, Bill Moyers uh, when he was interviewed on that show that, that uh, he, he learned a lot from his dad at the dinner table. Dad could come home from having uh, had an interesting time with his fellow board members on Planned Parenthood. And Gates didn't go into detail on this, but this is the same guy who in a 2010 TED talk about the environment said in passing that he, think, he, he thought that the uh, world population should be reduced by 10 to 15% and that we can do this through measures like, and he mentioned several things, including vaccines. And he's pushed it ever since uh, in his sort of seemingly likable nerdy way with a lavender sweater and the Kermit the Frog voice, you know. But he's actually um, very serious about uh, depopulation. And your listeners should uh, check out what Michael Yeadon has been saying, Y-E-A-D-O-N, former Pfizer vice president and their chief scientist who has been uh, saying everywhere he gets a chance to speak that he sees these COVID vaccines, which are not really vaccines, as part of an enormous depopulation exercise. And this is a guy who was an insider and ordinarily very much pro-vaccine. He knows what he's talking about. And he's not the only scientist to sound the alarm about this program, but nobody hears about any of this, except those of us who take a, uh, a look at what's out there on the margins of the media spectacle. So this is very serious here, what's going on. And how do you account for the media this last few days? We've got nothing but news about how Israel has curbed COVID-19 because of the vaccine rollout. Well, that's, yeah, that's just uh, the, the toll that it's taking and the resistance to the program uh, are completely unknown. So it's, it's being advertised as a complete success story, which is 
which is really a very perverse distortion of the truth. I mean, they, they have the most aggressive rollout campaign on the planet, and it's clearly meant to be a model for all the rest of us, and that includes Americans. I mean, it's the pilot program, and it's, it's, uh, it's a crime against humanity, as a number of Israelis have been saying, as Holocaust survivor Vera Sharab, who's a friend of mine, has been saying, and she's not the only Holocaust survivor to be saying that what she sees now is all too familiar. Okay, so the, the way that they're distorting and sanitizing the story out of Israel is just one more crime that I pray to God is someday uh, uh, dragged into the light of day before a, a world tribunal when all of this is over, because this is, as some Israelis have said, this is like a second Holocaust, but it's, it's been carried out you know, without something as distastefully clumsy as uh, death camps, you know, and uh, secret, you know, train loads of uh, Jews being transported across chilly countrysides at night, you know, that's so melodramatic and unpleasant when the consequences come to light in newsreels. This is much, much more sophisticated. You have a world population terrorized into thinking that this disease is one of the worst things ever to hit us, you know, in terms of pathogens. One of the survival rate is something like 99.74%. It's a preposterous exaggeration. And I don't deny that it, it has been lethal in some cases. I myself have lost a friend to it, nearly lost another. But the fact is that the number of cases, actual COVID cases is far lower than people think because the, the ways in which they define a case are you know, statistically and scientifically absurd. I mean, you can go to the CDC website and it says they're right in black and white, it, you know, uh, you know um, cases or presumed cases of COVID, which explains why the, the, the flu seems to have disappeared last year. There've been hardly any cases of the flu. How did that happen? Did flu disappear? No flu deaths were rebranded as COVID deaths because there's a financial incentive for hospitals in uh, listing COVID cases and COVID treatments and having COVID cases in their beds. So it's a numbers game as well. It's completely corrupt and, and the entire professional system is complicit in it, you know? So that's why they've been covering Israel the way they have. Uh, it's because, you know, it's a way to sort of discount the truth about what's going on there. I, I should say, you know, as one who very closely follows all this, I happen to know somebody who lives on Gibraltar. Gibraltar has a very small population and, and the uh, traffic between Gibraltar and Spain has always been heavy. So it's not, you know, though it's an island, it's by no means isolated or protected from infections on the mainland. The number of COVID cases there prior to the vaccination program was quite low. Since the vaccination program started, uh, deaths by COVID have skyrocketed. See, because it looks like the people who get the shots, and this is something for everybody to bear in mind, uh, very actively shed the virus after their so-called vaccination. See, this is what happened with measles. Kids vaccinated with the MMR vaccine uh, so that they don't get measles actually shed the measles virus and it's that virus that other kids then have caught, you see. And then the media treats this as a disaster uh, for which 
parents who don't vaccinate their kids with the MMR are held responsible, you see. People should study a little bit of vaccinology. Uh, certainly people with PhDs in other fields, you know, who can read English and presumably think straight, should maybe acquaint themselves with some of the facts about vaccinology and disease because the things I've heard from my uh, peers are just, you know, shocking uh, for their ignorance. I have a friend who is on the uh, faculty uh, of the medical school, uh, not as a doctor, but uh, in, in another field. I was having an exchange with her about the mask mandates and I was complaining about the fact that all my colleagues talk about the returning students, uh, you know, the way that the British propagandists talked about the Germans in World War I, like the Hun, you know, they were talking about the hordes of returning students, how they're gonna infect everybody and how their behavior had to be closely monitored and how it, it was a good thing that NYU was encouraging them, encouraging them to snitch on each other. You know, I was complaining about this and she said, well, I don't know about you, but I'm wearing a mask everywhere I go because any one of those students could be a typhoid Mary, okay? A typhoid Mary. Typhoid, if that story is even true, typhoid Mary was cooking for, for families and presumably they were catching typhus from her cooking, okay? They weren't, they weren't walking past her on a windy street in New York City. So unless, you know, unless my colleague was in the habit of having returning undergraduates come over and cook her dinner, you know, I, 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 you know what I mean? It's like the primitive mind in action. And, and you have to understand, you know, as I demonstrate throughout my courses, that propaganda doesn't really appeal to the rational part of your mind. You know, it, it goes past the forebrain and it hits you at a lower level where you're not really thinking, you know, you're just reacting. So, you know, all the stuff we're talking about, you know, all the canceling and, and the persecution and the, you know, the, the screaming and the stigmatization, there's something atavistic about it, don't you think? It, oh, it has a kind of atavistic uh, tribal feel. It's, it's really, it's really not, um, it's not a characteristic of the enlightenment. We are definitely in a medieval era. I'm very worried about what's happening for our mental health as well. Yeah. Very little is being written about this. I write about it and editors will not run it because they tell me uh, we're afraid that it will look like we're against virus mitigation efforts or we're against masks. We're against, you know, and I'm like, whoa, editors of publications are worried about covering subjects from various angles. Here we are in the era of op-ed news. There's oh. very little news out there. Oh. <laughs> no kidding. Well, first of all, Julian, anything like that you write that you want some people to see, you should send to me because my stuff has been getting around. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons they've gone after me, in fact. Um, uh, that's the real reason. Um, and, you know, more and more people are signing on to get my emails. So uh, please do think of me as a possible outlet. But that, you know, you just put it in a nutshell, the gravest problem we're now suffering from, you know, which is the um, suspension of uh, free speech and, and uh, the complete capture of the media, which will not run any news that contradicts the official narrative. I mean, what you say about mental health is, is all too true. My wife's a therapist and she just spends 12 hour days uh, dealing with people in crisis over this situation. It is completely unnatural 
it's completely sick. And again, I can't stress strongly enough how, how contemptuous I am of all those so-called progressives who are fine with this. It is bad for people. Suicide rates are skyrocketing and so on. And it should be covered, uh, uh, honestly. You know, even the World Health Organization and the UN have taken note of some of this, but it, it has no traction and it gets no coverage when it should be getting uh, tremendous amounts of coverage. But, you know, uh, I, I have to say, I, I, I'm no longer capable of even looking at the New York Times because it just gets, gets me too upset. You know, this is a paper I've written for it, you know, uh, op-eds, four or five op-eds in my time. And this is back before um, Bush Cheney's theft of the 2004 election. And when I, you know, wrote a book about that and became tagged as a conspiracy theorist uh, myself and, you know, I can no longer uh, have access to any forum like that. And the Times has become increasingly eccentric and extreme in its coverage of all these issues ever since Trump, really. Uh, so I think that it represents uh, the kind of liberal worldview as it has degenerated over the last few years into something just as oppressive as uh, the far right was in the 50s, you know, uh, the Russophobia, the hostility to the working class, the misogyny, you know, implicit in their embrace of transgenderism. You know, I, I don't see what's liberal about it at all. So, you know, the phrase, the liberal media, I mean, uh, there used to be some justice in it, uh, but now it's a complete misnomer, misnomer because the meaning of liberal has changed so radically. But, but we, we very, we, we urgently need as many of us as possible to get more involved in alternative media like podcasts such as this one and uh, email lists like mine. There are a lot of great people now writing on Substack. That's where this is hosted. I started Substack because I got sick of it. I left academia and I transitioned into journalism. And the first lesson I learned is that there was pretty much no left left unless you tow a certain kind of rhetoric. Exactly. And so I try to work with that because, you know, <laughs> you want to get published and coming from right. academia, you also look sideways at first. But I was told by a massively popular publication that deals with Black Americans' rights that I have shitty friends because I referred to two African-American scholars in an article I submitted who were critical of some of the workings in and around Black Lives Matter. And right. so I was told, you have shitty friends. And I'm thinking, what kind of publication is this? And I said, well, I don't actually know these two people personally, so they're not friends. And this goes on and on. I cited Adolf Reed in one article and my editor from another publication wrote me back saying, well, he wasn't deplatformed. He had his invitation rescinded to speak at the DSA in Philadelphia. And I'm like, that's the definition of uh, no platforming, but whatever, I won't get into semantics, but this is yeah. what's going on. You have the quote unquote left, because this is not left, this is now neoliberalism. And neoliberalism I think is just a sidestep to the left of the right. I don't oh, think this is a, at all left. And no, no. where are all the worries coming? from the left about renters who are now being told, oh, you can pay your New York City rent when you get a job. How is anyone gonna pay $20,000 of back rent? Right. Are these people insane? 
Well, yes. No, I know. Yes. And no one's talking about it. Class no. issues and your mention of democracy now and Amy Goodman. Oh my God. Like what happened? What happened there? So we do need more media studies. I'd like to see the Columbia Review of Journalism coming out with more criticism about this quote unquote left neoliberal axis of media catering to op-ed only. There's very little journalism covering all sides. As you mentioned, the article in the post, at least getting a quote from you, but so many places are not actually doing the due duty of a journalist, which is to get various stories from various sites and we're not getting facts no we're not we're, we're we're getting spin and we're getting lies they're just outright lies i mean i used to think it was kind of tasteless and extreme you know and i'm i wasn't the only one you know to invoke nazi germany as any kind of um uh as in any way comparable to the media uh, here but now there's no question about it none in my mind you know and and it's you know there's a new book on the New York Times forthcoming by an uh, Ashley Reinsberg R I N D S B E R G it's called the Gray Lady Winked and it's a history of uh, the New York Times's shocking um, journalistic failures starting with uh, their coverage of Hitler which was actually quite favorable and the, the Times along with Goebbels's press, actually reported on September 1st, 1939, that Poland had invaded Germany. That was the New York Times. They also had uh, Walter Durante covering Stalin, and it was all propaganda denying the famine in Ukraine and calling the show trials legitimate. I mean, it was utterly disgraceful. They all but blacked out the Holocaust throughout the time it was going on. Uh, and there's a whole book about that by Laurel Leff. And uh, they celebrated the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, I could go on and on. I, I, I wrote the preface to this book. We need more stuff like that. Uh, we need, need more stuff to demonstrate that, that the Times is, is an utterly corrupt paper with, with, with actually quite a poor record. Uh, you know, they were avid participants in, in the war drive against Germany, uh, you know, in 1917. They ran all the lies that the British had concocted about, you know, uh, babies impaled on bayonets in Belgium and all that stuff. Uh, it's time for people to, you know, not only break away from the old left-right divide and for people of principle on either side to join together to save America from so-called liberals and progressives, you know, First Amendment, things like that. Uh, and we have, to, we have to build our own media outlets and fight harder than ever for free speech. I, I wanna take this opportunity to announce that uh, some of us here in the city have uh, started something called Save Our Speech, you know, SOS. We want to fill the gap that's been left by the ACLU, which has become, as you pointed out, just a kind of woke propaganda mill. Uh, you know, there was a time when the ACLU actually defended the Nazis' right to march in Skokie, Illinois. Some people may remember that. Or, I or remember. Well, I've, I've watched a film about it recently. Oh, yes. Uh, was that the one with Danny Kaye, the TV movie? Oh, this was the one on the former head of the ACLU. It's a documentary. Oh, it's a documentary? Uh, yes, I'll send you uh, the link after. Yeah, please do. Yeah, I'll send that around. Yeah, you know, the Nazis in Illinois wanted to march in Skokie, 
which was a, a flagrant provocation because Skokie's got a lot of Jews living there and a lot of Holocaust survivors. And they, uh, Skokie refused to give them a permit and the ACLU defended their right. The ACLU were not in any sense the least bit pro-Nazi, on the contrary. Uh, but they saw it as a matter of principle, you know, for the same reason that Noam Chomsky wrote that preface to uh, Robert Fortisson's book about, you know, what's the Holocaust denial. Incidentally, Chomsky refused to sign my petition. So whatever's happened to Hamie Goodman has happened to him too. We're trying to fill the gap that's been left by the ACLU. Uh, we'll join forces with any other groups that are genuinely committed to free speech, you know, no, no exceptions. Uh, that will be much stricter in applying the term hate speech to speech that simply makes people uncomfortable because it challenges their views. Um, you know, I mean, I, here I'm on the same page with people like Alan Dershowitz, who believes in, you know, free speech above all, and Bobby Kennedy Jr., you know, and others. And we're going to bring together, uh, you know, people like Naomi Wolf on the left, she's been much deplatformed for her heresies with people like Tucker Carlson on the right, who is like the devil as far as progressives are concerned, but they all believe in the right to discuss these issues openly and to disagree openly without anybody being silenced, you know, or fired or harassed uh, or, or defamed, you know? Uh, so um, if you join, you know, News From Underground, I'll be sending out, you know, further announcements about that, but I wanted you to know about it, Julian, and I, and I expect you'll want to join us. Yeah, I will. And I'll, I'll put it in the link in the description. How times have changed. Uh, there is no left left. And no, I despair no for the future because as you and I both know, when the vacuum is left for the far right to take over and it can very likely happen, we will be up Shit's Creek. Well, indeed. But I, I, can, I can see, uh, you know, uh, no less dire an outcome if the so-called left remains at the helm, you know, because they, they have better, yeah, they have better cover, you know, and the far right is, I mean, there is certainly a far right, but, you know, it's, it's, it's influence and, and, and power have been, you know, drastically exaggerated. It, it, and this idea that Trump is Hitler, I mean, please, would you read a book? I mean, they have nothing in common, you know? I mean, it's just embarrassing. Thank you.